Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today on the podcast, Kurt and I are excited to talk with Jay Redding. Jay is the Director of Admissions at Nestled Recovery Center. Um, He once was on a 14-year drug and alcohol dependence streak, losing many jobs and loved ones with his selfish and self-destructive path. Finding his calling has helped keep him in active recovery since 2017. Jay's ability to satisfy a sense of meaning and purpose by helping others get quality treatment has filled a hole and ultimately saved his life. Um, I read a quote today that that uh, that Jay posted that I thought was I thought was simple and very powerful, and I wanted to just read that before we get going. As a leader, you have an incredible opportunity to change someone's life every single day. It could be something as simple as saying hello writing a handwritten note stating stating you did an excellent job today or remembering um, your employee's name when greeting them. I just thought it was a really simple reminder of how easy it is to lift somebody and and notice them and make a difference. So I appreciated that and wanted to share it today. Jay, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Um, and thank you for that. It's It's one thing that I've, I've kind of figured out along the way through a lot of trial and error and a lot of failure and mistakes is, um, one, you, you can't forget what you what you know and where you've come from, and you, you can't forget to uh, that you've been able to learn from mistakes and find success, and, and people call that wisdom. Um, I would trade it all to be able to go back and, and do everything the right way the first time, believe it or not. Um, world's full of people. You know, addicts are, are people, and... Um, I feel like it, what's kind of gotten lost in the uh, the profitability of all of all of this in the industry is the fact that um, we all need help and we need real help. And I, I like what you said. We all need help, right? It's not just not just those suffering with addiction. Every one of us does. Mm-hmm. Um, and somewhere along the way, it, it, talking about feelings and, and being able to be vulnerable and exp- and be exposed uh, and not be in fear of a perception of what people think about you for status purposes it's just gotten lost and um it kept me down for a long time you know so i'm, I'm grateful to, to kind of be on the other side of that and and uh i'm not superman if i could do it anybody can do it i'm curious about your comment that you know if you could go back and do it over again and do it differently that you would and that you would like to um, as opposed to what I often say is, you know, I've been through some really crappy stuff, and but I wouldn't give any of it up because I learned so much and have become who I am because of it. So I'm curious about your statement. What part of that would you want to do over? I think it's you. You kind of walk this this line of regret, which you're not supposed to have any, and um, and just wishing that hindsight was a real thing, uh, because I, I've made. A lot of mistakes, and my mistakes, I feel like, aren't aren't the same as, as a normal person. I said normal in quotation marks. A normal person's mistakes. My mistakes hurt a lot of people. Uh, my mistakes have caused a lot of pain to people. That um, yes, absolutely, I wish that I could I could go back and do differently. Um, would I end up the same in the same place with the same knowledge and the same experience? Probably not. But I'd like to think that if I didn't have some of those flaws early on. 
you know, I probably could have contributed to society a little bit more a lot sooner. And that makes sense. And that kind of qualifies the statement that I read earlier um, about, you know, feeling selfish and self-destructive. Those are pretty strong, you know, kind of negative ways to look at yourself. Um, but, but it's pretty, but you've explained that in ways of, you know, you really just wished you didn't hurt the people that you hurt because relationships are so important. They are. It's, it's, you know, I'm very fortunate in the fact that I took my, um, I took my addiction as far down as it could go, uh, without going in the ground. And that was being homeless, you know, and, and living out of a car. And, and, um, I say that I tell that story and a lot of times I'll get to, Oh, you know, you, poor thing. And I said, you know, the sympathy, we can't have the sympathy. I appreciate it. Um, but understand that, um, those were my choices that, that took me there. I chose to be there. I had opportunities abound along the way and missed every single one of them. Um, and that's kind of what we tried to, what I, I definitely try to impose on the clients that come in the front doors here is every action as a reaction, every choice as a consequence. And you need to be mindful that you're going to leave with a solution. You're going to leave with tools and coping skills. And if you make the wrong, continue to make the wrong choices, you're going to have to live with the results of them. And a lot of us just have to find out for ourselves. Very frustrating. It is. It's, it is frustrating. And, and it's, and you have, I mean, I can tell you've had quite a story because to, at least wise to me, and maybe that's just my perspective is that anytime you end up on the, you know, homeless, it's pretty serious, right? When you're willing or able, I mean, you use the word willing, like you're taking responsibility in every way, shape and form for your decision, your choices, which I think you have to, but that, that addiction is something that is consuming and takes over and, and takes away your, your choices on many levels. But when you end up being homeless, you know, that, that feels like the bottom of the barrel, but I heard you say you didn't, you didn't end up in the ground, buried in the ground and dead. And so you didn't hit rock bottom. Uh, very luckily through, through, you know, the grace of God and, and some very hardworking and fast acting EMTs, um, in September, 2009, uh, when, you know, I, a lot of good things happened. A lot of lucky things happened that morning for me to still be here today. Um, uh, but you know, I was found with methadone and Xanax in my system and my heart was beating six times a minute and I was laying on my back and I was choking on, on my own vomit, not to be too gruesome, but. Um, I was in the, I was in a full fledged overdose and I, I probably wouldn't be here if I was found 10, 15, 20 minutes later. Um, dealing with existentialism for as long as I did, not understanding why I was here, what I was supposed to be here for and what I was supposed to do. Um, that was a bit of a wake up call. That being said, it wasn't enough. I still had another five, six years in me after that, um, of self pity and self doubt and, um, I always, I call it letting the depression win, letting, letting your mental health disorders just, just beat you and choosing not to fight back. Mm. Talk a little bit about the journey of where you started and, and wh where you would, you know, what you would say this started. And it seems like sometimes family dynamics, you know, are the perfect storm for addiction. And, and sometimes they're not sometimes, Sometimes it's just a choice that we make and start it off and, and all of a sudden it ends up in an addiction. What's, what's your past look like? Uh, definitely did not wake up from as early as I can remember. and want to be an addict. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it started with, uh, you know, my parents divorced when I was one. Um, I came from a good home, um, albeit with its own challenges uh, on both sides. Um, parents never got along, really still don't get along. Um, that's, that's their own story. That's something I accepted long ago, but, um, it was, it was tough to grow up in. Um, first essentially raised by my mother. Um, she, she worked several jobs. She, we never wanted, never needed for anything. Um, took very good care of us. That being said, um, I saw a lot of things as a child that I shouldn't have had to see. Um, I was unfortunately a victim of sexual abuse, uh, at the age of six, um, six and seven. And, uh, from that point on, um, you could say it happened again when I was around 15, 16, um, taken advantage of, um, and both of these were by females and, um, it, it kind of created a, uh, uh, an ability to compartmentalize for me very, very early, um, where I started to become the person that I thought people wanted to see. And I, and I started to, 
to become, if you want to say, a salesman. Um, I don't think I was born a salesman. I'm not a big fan of sales, but I learned how to survive in any room I was in. Um, I had no self-confidence. I had no self-esteem. Um, I took my first uh, puff of weed, I think, at 13, my first drink at 14. And from that point on, I, I, my first drink, I got drunk, um, hated alcohol. I got awful hangovers. But I, at that age, I knew what getting drunk let me do. And it let me forget. It let me be who I wanted to be and have that confidence. And I took my first Vicodin at 15. Um, I separated my shoulder in a fo- playing a football game. And I actually was given it by a family member. And they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. You know, a small town, one street light in my town that I grew up in, very small. Um, didn't really have access to the resources that, that some people would in a big city. So here's a Vicodin. Here you go. Took the pain away. Um, I never forgot that feeling that it made me feel. And opiates were my first official drug of choice. Um, took that to college. I managed to, to maintain it through high school. Uh, my mother got cancer in high school and, and kind of wasn't the same after. I uh, was very close with her and eventually became very codependent there. Um, got to college, thought I was supposed to go to college, so I did. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, went for a business degree. I bullshitted my way through four years somehow. I, I was a good talker. Rarely went to class. Developed a very nice, uh, healthy opiate habit in college. I went, I'm from Baltimore. went to school in Baltimore. And, um, you know, I dibbled and dabbled when I had money, I would buy it when I, when I didn't, I would just, you know, kind of go through the motions. Um, a lot of drinking on the weekends. I worked in a bar and, um, kind of allowed me to, to reinvent myself in that setting of, of being, you know, a bouncer and, and the person with confidence and, and took me until I was about 30 years old to realize that, man, that was all fake, mm-hmm. all of it. It was all bravado and, uh, and, and for show, um, by the time I graduated college and, and when I was 21, I got a job, and for the first time, I could afford uh, opiate pain pills every day. And when I could afford it, I went and bought them. And uh, it takes about two weeks for doing those every day for you to become physically dependent. Um, that's when the sickness happens, when you don't have them. And I was in that cycle uh, from 21 until I was 29. Um, that eventually led to heroin. It led to homelessness. Um, I had three stints in treatment. In that eight-year span, um, escaped some grand larceny charges uh, through a lot of good fortune as well. I've been very, very fortunate. Um, I, I always said that I never got a good opportunity, and, and I've gotten plenty. Um, some I've also had about eight or nine lives. Um, I've got three overdoses on my resume, um, the last one of which I told you about in 2009. Um, lots and lots of depression. Um, I don't think I cried actually for the first time until I was in my twenties. Um, I was, I was pretty numb, um, from, you know, 15 to, to 29. My first stint in rehab, I did 10 days when I was 24 years old. And, um, I was so good at selling myself that my therapist actually called my family at like day nine. And said, I've never seen anyone this far advanced. This, this, who's made this much progress this fast. And she said, he's good to go. He's ready to come home, man. I did a hell of a job with that one. Hmm. I made it 36 hours after I was discharged. And the only reason I I made it 36 hours is because I was watched for the first 34 or else it would have been one hour. Um, A few months later, I went for uh, my second time. Uh, When I was 25, I went in on my birthday. I went for 19 days. And this time I, uh, I was angry at the world. I was angry blaming everybody but myself. Um, it's, it's your fault for how you raised me. It's, it's your fault for what you put me through. It's that person's fault for what they did to me. And, um, that didn't, that didn't do very well for me either. Um, I had never found a job to that point that I enjoyed doing. Um, I, I hated every job I had. I worked 70 hours a week to fund a drug habit that, that left me with no money in my bank account. Um, I borrowed money from people that I had no intention to pay back. I stole things that weren't mine. Um, all in all, I was, I was a, really, in my eyes, a good person that was doing some really bad things. Um, when I was 27 or so, I started to isolate. Um, I went into sober living. I wasn't a big fan of that. Um, that, that took humility and willingness, and I didn't have much of either of those two things. Um, but I started to run out of options. I had not, didn't have a good job anymore. I didn't have stable housing. I was bouncing around from city to city. And, uh, all over time, I was losing friends, losing family. 
Um, and, and I took that till I was 29 years old in a few months. And um, I went into treatment for the third and final time. And I went for 14 days. And that was because that was all the state of Maryland would allow me to be in there for. Um, and I, I wish that time I would have gotten to go a little bit longer. And um, after that, I went into a sober house. And I still hadn't had enough. I uh, decided in that sober house I was going to go and use. By that point, I had a heroin and a crack cocaine habit. And uh, ended up walking out of that sober house when they asked me to pee in a cup because I knew how that was going to go. And that was my, uh, my, my stint with being homeless in Baltimore. It was the middle of winter. It was very cold. Um, I was staying in abandoned houses with no heat. I was stealing food from the grocery store to eat. Um, I was taking things and selling them to fund my habits. And um, I woke up, I think if I get the date right, it was March 1st of, uh, of 2016. I woke up and I was in a house with a bunch of random people that I, I didn't know. And I was sleeping on the floor. And my, in my mind, I just said, I don't want this. I don't want to die. I don't want this. This is not for me. I, I have put hair gel in my hair since I was 12 years old. I said, I can't even, I don't even have a shower here. I was like, I just... This isn't me. I said, I don't want this anymore. And um, I ended up calling my mother up. I had uh, one friend and, or two friends, very dear friends of mine, and uh, my mother were my only ones left pretty much. And, and I say that not resenting the people that left. I, I say that as in everyone had to go, and I get it. So um, I told them that I was, I was done this time. I said, I'm ready to do whatever it takes. And um, that involved getting myself detoxed in a motel room uh, for about five days so I could pass a drug test. Um, my, uh, my mother had heard that there was some, some solid recovery down in Delray Beach, Florida. And I had a cousin that lived down there that kind of um, echoed that as well. And she put her finger on the Internet, on Google or mouse clicker, and she picked out a halfway house. And uh, there's 2,600 of those in South Florida. And if you haven't seen any, any news or, or watched any documentaries on, on TV, a lot of those are bad ones. And um, got very lucky. Again. <laughs> <laughs> um, she found a place called Healing Properties and uh, saved my life. Mm. Jay, talk um, a little bit about, um, I mean, it's quite an, an incredible story and, and a long story of, of getting into recovery. And you, you went to, to treatment several times. What were some of the pivotal moments that got you to treatment? Uh, all, to be honest, all three times were because I either had no choice or I thought I was supposed to go or I thought it would keep me out of trouble. Um, all the wrong reasons to go. Uh, by the time I was actually ready to do what it took, I didn't have treatment as an option anymore. Mm. So um, that's kind of something else I try to try to harp on with the, with these these guys. I mean, the Nestled is a luxury program. It's a boutique style program. It's it's one that I'm happy to be a part of because I had a, I get to have a hand in in building it and growing it. But people that come in are very fortunate. Still, they haven't lost a lot. And um, rock bottom is to, to people is, is how much are you prepared and do you have to lose to be able to do everything differently? What percentage of the time are they ready to change? <sighs> Unquantifiable number, but if I had to throw one out, um, when they come in to my program, maybe two out of ten are ready to really put the work in and, and do it. Um, when you get to the point that I was at, um, that number is a little bit higher um, because the only thing after that is, is, is death. Or jail and uh it's a very low number kurt it should be a lot higher mm -hmm. uh, but you can't identify anyone's rock bottom and that's the hard part for families I, you know a lot of my my job now get once i get a client through the front door is, is i switch to the families i try to educate them as best i can i try to to explain to them how they're helping and how they're not how they can support and how they're how what enabling actually is what codependency looks like and and how addiction damages a family as well and how everyone needs to work and, and go to therapy and heal, um, and how not to set improper expectations when they leave, because, you know, we get them for 30 days if we're lucky. And uh, you're trying to undo years and years of bad habits in 30 days, and all we can do is, is I tell people, is this program gives you a head start on the places I went, I went through. That's it. It's a good foundation to head start. Um, the real work starts when you leave. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It's ironic that you pivoted to the family because I want to ask the same question. What percentage of the time is the family ready to do the work? Less. Less, right? That's, Less. That's, I think that's one of the things that's, that's painful because we've talked about, you know, the importance of getting the family involved early, resetting mm-hmm. that mindset of, you know, fix my child, that kind of thing. Yep. That, you know, this is a this is a family disease, right? It might be an individual who has the disease, but everybody gets to carry the symptoms or whatever, right? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe one person has the symptoms and it's the family that has the disease or something. I don't know how you look at that, but um, that's a hard sell, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's you look you look at two addicts in a room, and I actually had this epiphany kind of my my last time in treatment is I was sitting in in treatment at eating lunch. And I had a, a guy across from me that, for all intents and purposes, was a silver spoon. Um, he'd had everything. His parents were very wealthy. Um, he never wanted, never needed everything he could dream of. He had it on his on his doorstep the next day. Um, family dynamic. His parents were happily married. Uh, he was in sports. Happy, happy life. Happy kid. And um, I would say I was probably on the other end of that spectrum a little bit uh, in a lot of ways. And but we both ended up across the lunchroom, from, across the table from each other with heroin habits. How? So it's, it's, there's several different, and this is why I don't believe in like your cookie cutter type treatment programs. And unfortunately I've been a part of some of them in the, over the last couple of years is, um, that are more geared around towards just making a profit, keeping the doors open is if you don't take the time to understand exactly where someone's come from, how in the hell are you going to rehabilitate them? Because we're not all different or we're not all the same. None of us are the same. Each one of us is different, has a different story, different journey, different consequences, different family uh, dynamics at home, different trauma. So I think that you have some addicts and alcoholics that are predisposed to this genetically. It runs in the family. And that those all come from untreated, undiagnosed mental health disorders. They manifest. They have to manifest in some way. How do you deal with depression if, A, you're not willing to accept you have it? Or how do you deal with bipolar disorder if you don't know your, your peaks and your valleys and you're not on medication or you're not aware of them? You, you take drugs. You drink alcohol. You gamble. You get addicted to porn or shopping. Um, it manifests itself in some way. So there's the predisposed. Uh, there's the individuals that arrive there from trauma. Happy life until you're, you're molested. Happy life until you witness a murder. And then there are the individuals like my uh, Silver Spoon friend that um, – maybe had everything they needed, but love and affection from their parents. A lot of different ways to, uh, to get here. You know, a lot of, a lot of different ways to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but it, it's, it's good no matter how you make it. I tell people that when they go, how do I stay sober? I said, you've got AA, you've got smart, you've got your church. Um, we expose them to a little bit of all that when they're with us. I've seen a lot of people turned off to one way of recovery. Um, if it's forced on them, similar to religion. And, and I don't think that's, uh, that's right either. That's a, that's a different topic. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or, or is it? Because it's just like you said, every individual is different. They see the world from a different perspective and they've had different experiences. And if, if you don't offer them what they need, how are they going to, you know, how are they going to capture, capture it and hold on to it? Yeah, it's, um, it's unfortunately you're, you feel like sometimes you're preparing to minimize someone's relapse as negative as that sounds uh, with the relapse rate, what it is and the success rate, you know, overall unquantifiable because it's based on integrity and honesty uh, traits that addicts need to be taught or relearn. Um, you look at the relapse rate and, and, it, and that's what you kind of try to go by. And it's, how can I best prepare this person to a make the right choice when they leave or B, if they make the wrong choice, how to come back from it? I can tell by, by talking with you that you're probably a fairly no nonsense kind of a guy when you're working with people trying to get them into treatment, you know, that, that you have some expectations for them to come into treatment and be successful. What's, what's that look like? What's your approach with them? Cause it's a fine line that you're, you know, you want them in treatment but you also want them to want it. It is. Um, I think I, I was very lucky to to be able to be to kind of have the uh, the length and the flexibility, the leash to learn this job my way. Uh, from my my prior mentor, I started with a company called White Sands in Florida. Um, 
2017, we started with 36 beds in Fort Myers. They've opened up a 112 bed in 2017, and in my in my opinion, they're probably the first or second best program in Florida. So plug out the White Sands. Uh, <laughs> very very fortunate with uh, my first job in this industry, and um, not having to learn this job, not having to run a call center, um, which which I ultimately did. Um, the way that most call centers are run, um, I was able to kind of. I could be difficult to manage. Um, <laughs> I get that I, uh, idea. <laughs> I, I'm very, uh, I'm very. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. Um, you live the right way when nobody's watching. That's the big secret to all this. And um, and and I never met, never done this job with dollar signs on someone's forehead. And I found a way to be successful in in several several companies uh, with that mindset and and that perspective. And um, I think at the at the end of the day, I, I sell myself. I'm selling myself. I'm selling what my program could bring to the table. But if they don't trust you, they're not going to come. And if they don't, if they're not inspired by you or, you, or they don't want what you have, they're not going to come. And um, for that reason, I've, I've I can't work for a bad program. Uh, you know, I, I can't can't do that. And what kind of drew me to the nestled was ten beds and man having that ability to just be personable with someone and and be face to face with them and any chance i can here in vegas i get out i go to somebody's house um you could call it an intervention you call it whatever you want but if i have the opportunity to go sit down in front of someone and, and have them kind of see look in my eyes and, and see that i'm not messing around and i don't want you for your insurance and 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 if you don't come i'll be okay but i really hope you do because i think we can do some good um, it, I think it makes a big difference, and I think I wish we could have more of that. I think we're getting away from it, unfortunately, but I, I wish we could have more. Um, no nonsense, yes. I, I've got some patience left for these patients, <laughs> uh, but I would say probably five to six thousand. I've, I've, in some way, shape, or form, walked through a door in the last five and a half years, and um, I find myself uh, being very blunt with them and being very real with them, and. Um, I don't like to mince words anymore. Um, I need them to know that I empathize, but I don't sympathize. Um, I, I like to I like to get them in, and I like to say, "Look, I'm going to work on your families from here on out." That's my favorite part of this job now, is is not letting an addict take advantage of, of another member of their friends or family circle when they leave. Mm. So, yes, uh, empathy, but uh, a little bit of patience, but no sympathy is kind of how I operate. <laughs> well, I think it's also. It's pretty clear, right? It's very clear. There's no question as to where you are, where you are, what is important to you, and that you are in recovery for to stay, you know, to stay sober forever, um, and you're really serious about it. And I think that gives a sense of hope. And it's not that somebody with a different personality couldn't be equally effective, <clears throat> but I think it it sends a very strong message that if you're serious about getting sober, we can help you. Yes, and um, I've always tried to surround myself, uh, admissions-wise, with people that have a little bit more of that ability to uh, to show compassion when it's needed. And it's not that I don't have any. I think I have I have a little bit too much sometimes. I try to depersonalize some of it because, from an empathy standpoint, if you feel it, I feel it, and um, I try to keep that that vibe pointed towards positive because um, there's a lot of sad in this. I've lost 56 people since I've started this job, um, be that friends, alumni, or even employees of mine, uh, to, to addiction. And I'll, I know all of their names. Um, but I like to keep some people around me that are, have, uh, that are a little bit untainted by the industry. And, um, I have one now, um, Alex here in my office that she handles all that stuff for me. Uh, when, when we need the, the shoulders, I make sure I send Alex in because uh, ultimately I, I want you to know that, yes, we care, um, but I don't want you to die. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I need to do and say what I need to say to try and wake you up. Mm. It's so important to, to have that, to, to really send that message that healing is possible, but you've got to be serious about it. Uh, you talked about relationships, you know, Bridges that you burned, relationships that you really damaged and hurt. What does that look like today in your life? Oh, waterworks come out. We started talking about this. <laughs> All right, hold on. Uh, very fortunate again. I uh, I was a pretty uh, I was a pretty isolated user. Um, I didn't use in groups. I didn't have using buddies. I used by myself. 
I'm like the wall of my own self-pity and I didn't want company. Um, very fortunate that pretty much every friend that I made along the way uh, came back. And uh, <clears throat> very lucky for that. Mm. So um, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of great friends from many different states. Um, they check in often. I check in often. I try to ingrain myself in their lives and I appreciate when they do the same. And um, My friends kept me up and I'm very lucky to have them. That's um, that's pretty powerful. And how about your family? I mean, you talk about families and how important it is to have families on board and to understand what their role is. What does that look like in your own life? Uh, family. Family came back, too. Um, I think, like any family, they were just waiting, uh, waiting for me to, to be ready to grow up. A lot of this boils down to just being ready to grow up. Um, interesting fact, and I'll plug my siblings right now. I have an older sister. She did, um, I think, about 17 years in the Air Force, retired Air Force now, uh, successful as a family. I have a younger sister that uh, got a master's from Juilliard, and uh, she sings uh, opera in Germany. She's my best friend. And a little brother that is a PhD uh, in a PhD uh, program for chemistry, uh, just turned 22, I believe. And I was the heroin addict. I was a black sheep. And um, a lot of times, you know, I get to give advice now, which is pretty cool. You've got something to share that's of value different than any of them. Yeah, we'll call it that. Life experience. <laughs> here's, here's what not to do. you got your own PhD. It's, uh, you said a word, one of my favorite words uh, is hope. If you have it, you can, uh, you can move mountains with it, so. We'll talk about that for a minute because you talked about the idea of depression and that you, you know, part of your, part of your issue was the depression that you suffered and struggled with. Is that something that's still present today? Um, and what does that look like? How do you manage that? You gotta cut the parts out where I'm uh, crying, baby, right? <laughs> no, that's the best part. <laughs> uh, all right. Let me start thinking of some shit that makes me angry. Hold on. Um, my, my depression is... Uh, I actually am diagnosed with type 1 bipolar. Type 1 bipolar is uh, a lot more mania uh, than depression, but there are peaks and valleys. I do have both. Um, I kept a journal. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan, and I've tried medications in the past, um, I also have severe ADHD. I have some OCD if you want to get into diagnoses. And, um, and I also burned some brain cells <laughs> with, uh, with some of the stuff that I used over the years. So I kept a journal uh, when I decided I wasn't going to continue to try medication. I didn't like the side effects. Um, I love that it's there for individuals that, that, that it works for and that need it, similarly to uh, aftercare programs like AA and NA and, and refuge to recovery and smart recovery. I love that all of that is there to people that need it. Um, but I decided that I wanted to try this thing without that stuff. And uh, in order to do it, I have, I feel like I have to be a lot more aware. Um, I have to be aware of my surroundings. I have to be aware of other people's feelings and how my words and actions can affect them. And I have to be aware of my own, uh, my own valleys, my own beats. And I started writing them down and I realized that there's about a five, six week cycle between them. Um, and when I am manic, I have people that know it, they see it, they identify it, uh, they help me with it, um, call me out on it sometimes when I need to be slowed down. And uh, when I'm depressed, I, I know it. Those are days I can't get out of bed. I don't want to get out of bed at all. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to do the things that have gotten me to where I am. And um, I have people that can identify that too, that, that are in my circle that help me through that. And um, it's, it's hard. I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's hard. It's it's. I've seen depression keep people down their entire lives. 60, 70 years old. Got some in my family that still let it beat them. And um, it doesn't. I don't beat it every day, but I beat it more more often than not. And um, you can't ignore that it's there. And uh, mental health is is something that I wish we. I think we're starting to take more seriously, but I wish we started a lot sooner because. Like I said, people don't wake up and say, I want to be a drug addict today. Um, that's what that's where their mental health leads them to if they don't get help for it. Mm. You know, your perspective of, of, and I honor this, I think it's an important one to recognize that you get a choice and whether you use medication or not um, to assist in, you know, in 
maybe evening out some of the highs and the lows, but you've got to manage that and stay on top of that. But it doesn't mean you're not having those moments. Um, do you feel like how much control, that's the word I'm going to use. I don't know if it's the best word. How much control or influence do you have over your depression or your mania? Um, over the mania, I feel like quite a bit because I know when I'm in it and, um, I, I can separate myself when I need to. I mean, I'm, I have a hard time uh, with a lot of external stimuli. I have a hard time in, in social situations sometimes. A lot of that, um, when you, if you see me carry myself well throughout one, a lot of that is still fake. Um, people might call it an introvert and extrovert. I'm an introvert um, at heart, and and I get a little uh, I get a little weird when I go to a mall. I get a little anxious. Um, I get anxious when I'm um, in rooms full of a lot of people. Um, and, and I, I can't ignore those things, but I think I have a lot of control over the mania, but the depression is very tough. Um, it's very tough. Uh, some of those days are, are a little dark. Some of the thoughts can get a little dark. It, you know, I'm aware of them. Um, I try to tell people when I'm in it, if they can't see it. Um, because ultimately you can't isolate your way through that. You have to have a circle of people that you trust and, um, people that, that know, from a vulnerability standpoint, a hundred percent about you. And that's, I tell people that's one of, there's two secrets to, uh, to being or defining recovery, not necessarily finding sobriety. That's going to look different to everybody. I look at your life and where your life is and how much you've recovered from where you've come from and what you've come from. I think that's the most important part. Um, and first secret is you have to be transparent. You have to be willing to be a hundred percent transparent with even just one person and to an uncomfortable level. And you cannot be you cannot, you can't keep that. You have to be able to willing to give that to at least one person or else at one point you will outsmart yourself and you will bullshit yourself and you will lose. Uh, the second is secret is you have to do the right thing when nobody's watching. This isn't rocket science. It's just hard. And if, if you do that, and that means the right thing every time when no one's looking, your life will just magically start to improve. A good place to start to learn how to do that is by doing the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a member of AA or NA to do the 12 steps. Um, I think everybody on this planet should do 12 steps. Um, because it took me from selfish to selfless. It took me from uh, afraid to, to, to believing. It took me from no self-esteem to confidence. I mean, it's, it's a blueprint to a better you. I couldn't agree more. I, I agree with you. We all need, we all need support and the 12 steps are a fantastic way of guiding you to a better place, right? Getting yep. you to take that self-evaluation and look at what's going on in your life. And so I agree. It's, it's a fantastic program and you don't have to be an addict to use it in, in effective ways. Um, forgiveness. It helps you. It helps you learn forgiveness too. Mm -hmm. Which is, I tell people that come through my programs, if you don't figure out forgiveness in these thirty days, good luck. Figure it out here while while you're in a safe place, because that's where you have to start. That's a tough one, Jay. Because forgiveness is, in, in my experience, forgiveness is usually one of the last things that people are able to conquer when they do their recovery. Right? That that forgiveness kind of comes at the end. So that's a high expectation when somebody's starting at the beginning. Uh, heavy family involvement. Um, we do a lot of really cool forms of therapy, a lot of trigger therapy, a lot of exposure therapy, and, and we folk, we centralize on trauma therapy because we've all got some mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, and with that, you're able to kind of help the person, A, accept what they've done to someone or what has happened to them and work on that forgiveness aspect because you don't have to master it when you leave. You really don't. I know that's, like you said, it's a hard thing to do, but you have to be on the right path. Mm -hmm. to it you have to set yourself on a path to it and you can't you can't veer um because once you you forgive you let go of resentments you're no longer angry um you're no longer envious of what someone else has believe uh, not believing that you can't go and achieve it or attain it yourself um i mean it unlocks a lot of doors for you um and lifts a big weight off your shoulders for you to be able to carry some some other good stuff yeah and it's huge i mean forgiveness is huge Gratitude practice is another huge shifter for people. Um, but, you know, I think some people don't understand forgiveness. So the fact that you, you know, really focus on it, it's really not about holding somebody accountable or saying that they didn't do something wrong. It's about letting go of what's hurting you. Mm -hmm. 
So it's um it's it's very worthy of spending time on. Um, you talked about, and I'm curious um, about your ability to choose and make choices for yourself, even in because I know some people, and I'm I don't know because everybody's different. So your your experience may be different than somebody else's, but you talk as though you can make value choices, right? Have that integrity when nobody's looking and do what's important when nobody's looking and what's right, even in your mania and in your deep depression. Do you always have the capacity to make those choices for yourself or in some places do you lose some of that ability? Uh, I'm going to say yes. 95% yes. Um, and a lot of that, especially in the, in the manic state, is... Um, Part of your therapy or my therapy, and I, I, this was something I was very fortunate to have the least to learn from my mentor in Florida, was impulse control. Addicts have poor impulse control. We cannot say no to ourselves. Um, you have to start somewhere, and it might be, um, it might be, I want ice cream right now. I'm a dumb. I'm an ice cream addict. Trust me, <laughs> it's bad. Um, I want ice cream right now. I'm gonna go get it in my car and go get it. Tell you something else. And it's, it's little exercises like that and um, that, I, that I really think are kind of what help build your foundation and ability to be able to control those moments with your mental health. And all of these exercises, guys, they're free. They cost nothing. You just have to be taught and be, learn them and be willing to do them when you need to apply them. That's it. Um, and that is, those are choices. Those are choices that you can make or not make. Yeah. I mean, it's it's... I try to simplify it with these guys as best you can because, like I said, we will addicts will overcomplicate the shit out of everything. Every molehill is a mountain, and and everything is impossible. Everything is woe is me. And and no, bring me the bring me the single mom that's never done a drink or a drug in her life that works four jobs and has three kids and and makes it happen, fucking every day because she has to. Then tell me how bad your problems are. Yeah. And there's nobody. Uh, there's always somebody that's in worse shape than you are, right? Always. always. And and until always. you get out of your outside of yourself and look at somebody else and try and do something for somebody else, you get stuck in that self pity. I mean, you're kind of stuck there. I was uh, I was told my whole life that I had all this potential. And I was pretty decent at sports. Um, I loved playing them. I loved playing team sports. It was just kind of that connection that I, I never really felt like I got at home. Um, but you know, I was, I was bullied as in high school. I was, uh, I had an eating disorder from when I was 19 to I was 27. I had no, no self-confidence whatsoever. I looked in the mirror. I hated everything about myself. Um, that led me to, uh, through sobriety, um, from 2016 to 2018, my first two years of sobriety, I put on 70 pounds. I was 270 pounds by January of 2018. And, um, I worked every day. I don't think I took a day off for a year and a half. I loved what I did. I was obsessed with this industry and this job. It's the first one I ever, I ever loved to get up and go to every day. So I got up and went to it every day. And um, I remember seeing a picture. Uh, I'm a big Harry Potter nerd. And uh, my family uh, came down for New Year's that year. And uh, I remember my stepmother sent me a picture of us together at Harry Potter World. And I was just, and I went, holy shit how this happened. And, uh, I decided I was going to lose some weight. So, you know, I got a bicycle. I, I, I shifted because addicts do this. Whoever tells you they don't, they're lying. We shift our addictions. Mm. We have to be addicted to something. We have an addictive personality. Uh, guys try to, whoever's listening, try to make it a healthy one. Um, I got, addi- <laughs> I got addicted to losing weight. I lost 102 pounds uh, over the next two years. And then I, I got into biking and I stopped drinking sodas and I stopped eating fast food and, and, I love Brazilian food, and I got to Florida. I found that for the first time, and that was amazing. And um, but I got addicted to that, and and you know, it's I ended up losing all, a bunch of weight and kind of gaining some self confidence and and saved some money and on my Uber Eats account. And you know, I went. And I always wanted tattoos. I went and got those, and that gave me some more confidence. I call it body armor. Um, it keeps the people away that don't don't like this stuff, and uh, it gives me. Uh, it kind of gives me just a little bit more confidence to get through the day. And allowed me to express myself. I mean, I found a lot of hobbies in sobriety that I never thought I would I would ever have. 
when you took when sports were done for me in my 20s, I didn't know what to do with myself. I played baseball or football or softball or volleyball every day. And when that was all gone, um, you know, my body started breaking down because that's what happens when we get old, which sucks. Um, <laughs> but I didn't really know what to do. And, you know, I got into photography. I got into taking pictures. I, I got into hiking. You know, I moved here to be closer to Zion. Um, I love canyoneering now. Who the hell ever would have thought that growing up in a town so flat that you can't shoot a rifle and you drive tractors to school, some of the kids, that I would be in the mountains rappelling down cliff faces. Hmm. Um, all of that afforded to me just by deciding to do the right thing every day. That's, it's a powerful story, and, and I, love, I love asking, you know, being able to get your perspective on, you know, what that looks like for you and to have that integrity and, and take full responsibility of your choices. I mean, all of us make mistakes, but it sounds like um, like you don't have a lot of um, what, what's that look like when you when you make human error, you know how do you how are you compassionate? What does that look like for you? Uh, nightly reflection, because I am far from perfect. Um, I go to therapy, um, and I need it. Um, there are times when I can jump into like an I can jump into arrogance. I can be selfish sometimes. There are times when I put my feelings above others. Um, you try to, to reflect at the end of every day, and you go, who did, "It's you know, it's the end of the twelve steps." Uh, who did I hurt today? Can I make it right? Did I make it right right away? If not, stop being an asshole. Make it right tomorrow. Um, who did I help today? Uh, who did I help that I didn't have to feel the need to tell somebody that I helped that day because that's important too. Um, <laughs> And, and just in, in general, just realizing that I was a good person. I was raised the right way. I was a good person that did some bad stuff. And um, I think that's important. I think the, re the reflection part is important. I think that you don't, you don't do those steps and waste them. Um, you don't learn the, the, the good ways to, be, to live and be a good person and waste it. So it really just looks like every night before I go to bed, I try and think about those things. And I try and think about what I can do tomorrow to right any wrong that I, that I, that I did the day before. Having the integrity and the balls to actually do it, follow through with it. Which that takes a lot of courage too. You talk about you know shifting your addictions to different things, as if bike riding. You know, you talk about bike riding as being an addiction and losing weight as being an addiction. How do you see that? Because it sounded pretty healthy, the the pieces to it. It didn't disrupt your life, did it? Not necessarily, um, but it did. The biking, I mean, it's something where when I got into it, I got into it. I mean, I was doing 15, 20 miles a day. I would do it in the morning. I would get angry or impatient or upset at work, and I would leave to go bike five miles. I would bike at 11 o'clock at night when it wasn't safe to be outside. Um, I gave myself uh, issues, uh, some medical issues doing it, ignoring. I've never been a, a good at going to the doctor. Um, when I moved, I actually moved to California from Florida last year um, and took a job. I left, you know, the job I'd been at for three and a half, four years. I never thought I would leave, but I wanted to see more. I wanted to see the West Coast. I wanted to see mountains. And uh, I, I packed my truck up, and, and I drove across country solo last summer, and I, I moved to California. Um, met a lot of great friends. was there about a year and a half. I just moved to Vegas here just past September. Um, but when I got out there, you know, I was tired of biking. I was over it. It's boring. Um, got into golf. And I went and hit golf balls every day for six months. Some days I'd go twice, and uh, I ended up doing some damage to my shoulder doing that. I, I, I could not stop myself. I watched videos every day. I obsessed over my swing, and then I hurt my shoulder in July just from overswinging, and golf was gone. I got clubs sitting right there. I haven't swung them in months. Mm. And, and just like that, it was gone. So it's like that, that obsessive uh, component, that addictive component uh, is good to have a hobby, but knowing when to – keep it a hobby and not let it negatively impact your life, either from a medical standpoint or from taking time away that you should be spending on work or on your family. Having to find that line is something that still to this day is hard for myself and I know other addicts to do. Mm. I love that you, that you bring that up though. It's, it's, you might be sober, but you're still struggling with some of those patterns and behaviors that have been there for a long time and which is a great opportunity to continue to learn and grow and do that self-reflection and, you know, find that, you know, that middle of the middle of the road pendulum swing, right? If we're not changing, we're not growing. My uh, my mentor 
said that to me and it stuck with me. It always will. And, um, addicts are, uh, fear for fear alone. Um, we are so averse to change. We hate change. We don't want any part of it. Even if we're, we're living in despair, we're living in, in, in the dungeons of our mind, we will sit and, and, and do the same thing every day because it's comfortable and we can trust it and it's there for us when we need it. And, um, we have control over it too. Yeah, that's not just addicts. Um, now, you know, if I love change, I love it. I mean, I I feel like if I'm not learning something new or, or I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, but, um, I just got into woodworking a couple of weeks ago. It's one of my new things. You almost (laughs) chopped my finger off. So, uh, you know, it's constantly finding things to, um, as kind of a, a, a no nomad, um, that's always longing for more and longing for new, um, finding things to stimulate my mind and, um, and keep me busy is, is very important. Mm. And it is, it's important to keep yourself engaged in things that, that bring you happiness and joy. And yeah, I get that feeling. Jay, I've loved having you on today. You've really shared absolutely from the heart and, and, you know, been super vulnerable and, I love that. It's important. And I think people can see that and go, you know, here's this guy that's no nonsense, but, but your heart's there and we can see how important those relationships are to you. And so just thanks for being on today and thanks for being willing to share. Thanks for having me guys. It's a pleasure. It, uh, it's probably a good idea to maybe give some contact information because, you know, somebody's going to love your message and love the message of hope that you're sharing and is going to want to connect with you, maybe even get involved in treatment. So you better, you ought to share some of that. Sure. Um, our website is the nestled recovery.com. Um, all one word nestled is N E S T L E D. Uh, our admissions line, which we man 24 seven, um, seven, two, five, six, nine, six. 9905. And if you ever just need some advice or you want to reach out, my personal email is always available. It's sjredding, R-E-D-D-I-N-G, the number two, at gmail.com. And any way I can help. Hmm. I I know you mean it because you don't usually give personal stuff unless you really mean it. (laughs) Oh, I love it. 